Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello there, history friends, and welcome to episode 10 of the 30 Years War. Last time Frederick V of the Palatinate came under our microscope, we attempted to investigate his character, and we tried to assess those judgments about his culpability for the Thirty Years' War, which history has mostly handed down to us, blaming Frederick for what transpired. Frederick has been judged quite unfairly by posterity for what happened. But of course, we've yet to really examine the events which made, or I suppose you could say unmade, his name. The acceptance of the Bohemian Crown in summer 1619. Before we get there, we have some more background detail to get through first. In this episode, we're going to examine Frederick's Habsburg counterpart and the man who is normally presented in a similarly damning light, Ferdinand II of Styria from the House of Habsburg. Ferdinand was the leader of the Habsburg family in Austria from the beginning of the Thirty Years' War until the late 1630s. He's a figure of central importance to the widening of the conflict as well as its prolonging. Or is he? In this episode, we're going to resume our examination of this man from the brief character sketches we've made of him previously, and we're going to look at his relations with the Spanish branch of the family during the negotiations that culminated with the Onate Treaty in 1617 to try and learn more about him. Familial diplomacy, weighted negotiations, and not a small amount of stubbornness awaits us. So without any further ado, let's begin. I'm going to now take you to the household of Ferdinand of Styria. Ferdinand was a man of contradictions. In 1613, the same year that one of the final appeals to the constitutional can failed as Protestants walked out of the Diet in Regensburg, Ferdinand was putting the finishing touches on a personal rule in Styria which was as disarming as it was impressive. The Archduke of Styria had displayed a single-minded determination to root out heresy in his lands, starting from the moment he had arrived there in 1595 to assume his inheritance. 
Ferdinand's aforementioned actions in forcibly removing Protestant clergy, in burning 10,000 books and even in torturing certain Protestant individuals into relinquishing their hold over their schools, don't paint a particularly pleasant picture of the man who would stand as Holy Roman Emperor for nearly 20 years. Ferdinand's very behaviour in his own lands can all too easily be seen as a kind of foreshadowing, a prelude to what followed in the Thirty Years' War. He was the silly, Jesuited soul, as one called him, who put religion ahead of realism and enabled his notorious reputation to run ahead of itself. To the point that the Habsburgs' traditional bastions of support dramatically revolted just at the wrong time. Yet there was also more to the person of Ferdinand II than a militant Catholic zealot who forced the Thirty Years' War into being. In the first place, despite his reputation for intolerance, Ferdinand's personality was not so easily classified. Far from the austere or dull Catholic zealot, Ferdinand was personable and pleasant to those that he met. There was also a different side to his rule over Styria other than the religiously dogmatic treatises which enabled the Counter-Reformation to flourish there. C.V. Wedgwood provided us with a stellar description of his character when she wrote, The Archduke Ferdinand was a cheerful, friendly, red-faced little man with a reassuring smile for everyone. Frank good nature beamed from his freckled countenance and short-sighted, prominent, light-blue eyes. Friends and enemies agreed that an easier-tempered man was not to be met with. His rule in Styria was contentious and benevolent. He had started public schemes for the care of the sick and destitute and the provision of free legal defence for the poor in the law courts. His charity was boundless. He had a memory for the faces of his humblest subjects and a kindly curiosity into their private troubles. This character sketch does not seem to include the ingredients of a religiously motivated, absolutist monster. It has to be added to this that Ferdinand was a devoted family man, as well as a devout Catholic, and this latter quality contributed to his infamy more than any other aspect of his character. Indeed, devotion to his family and to God were often intertwined. Later on in his reign, the resident papal nuncio in his court, Carlo Carafa, recalled that Ferdinand goes to bed at around 10 in the evening, as is the German custom. He is already up around 4 in the morning or earlier. Once he has got up, His Majesty goes to the chapel to hear two masses, one for the soul of his first wife, who, though of shaky health, was tenderly loved by the Emperor. If it is a feast day, the Emperor then takes Holy Communion, for which purpose he goes to the church and hears a German sermon. This is usually given by a Jesuit and lasts an hour. After the sermon, he remains at the high altar, usually for an hour and a half, accompanied by specially selected music. On those days that are not feast days, the emperor, after attending two masses, spends the rest of the morning and much of the afternoon in council meetings. What this extract fails to mention was the quality which Ferdinand and many of his peers held in common at this time, and yes, it might seem sort of random, but Ferdinand and his peers had a passionate love of the hunt. However, unlike some of his contemporaries, John George of Saxony, for instance, managed to record over 100,000 kills during his tenure as Elector of Saxony, Emperor Ferdinand never allowed his pastimes to hamper his responsibilities as a ruler. This, indeed, was more than what could be said for Ferdinand's own relatives. 
Over the years 1617 to 1619, Ferdinand had accepted first the Bohemian crown and then the title of Holy Roman Emperor. But in the years before, his cousins Rudolf II and Matthias had made their contribution not towards the maintenance of the peace per se, but towards the reduction in the dynasty's power base at home and its reputation abroad. The defenestration of Prague in May 1618 is widely regarded as the moment when the Thirty Years' War began. That is, the initial year. It's why the Thirty Years' War is given the timeline of 1618 to 1648. But while this event signalled the beginning of a European catastrophe, it also represented the culmination of years of tension and division within Bohemian society. Since 1609, when the ailing Rudolf II was forced to approve the Letter of Majesty to appease the Bohemians and ease the tensions in the city of Prague, where he had made his home, the country presented problems to the dynasty which was supposed to rule over it. According to the Bohemians, Habsburg rule over their country was a privilege which they bestowed rather than a hereditary right, since the Bohemian crown was elective. Due to Bohemia's critical position in the empire's constitution, as one of the electors though, its crown was far too important to ever let out of Habsburg hands. To Rudolf and Matthias, concessions to the Bohemians rather than confrontation appeared the smarter choice, but this didn't prevent either figure from engaging in some questionable practices in private, while putting on a public face of toleration and acceptance of Bohemians' traditional liberties. The truth was, wrote one historian, Bohemia in the later 16th century was in the most dismal confusion. This confusion was caused by the religious, societal and political divisions of the country, which were exacerbated by Habsburg involvement in Bohemian affairs and the ambitions of Bohemia's emperor kings to recast their rule in a more secure position. The tensions between the Habsburg kings of Bohemia and the people of Bohemia reached their peak during the tenure of the three Habsburg kings that ruled before the Thirty Years' War broke out, specifically between the years 1608 to 1618. During the war with the Turks, Matthias had pacified the Hungarians by promising them religious toleration, but this had led to increasingly loud calls from other estates in the Habsburg domains, as the people of Bohemia, Austria and Moravia agitated for similar concessions. When the deputations from the estates in these lands failed to wrest the desired concessions from Emperor Rudolf, they turned their attention instead to his brother Matthias. In January 1608, Matthias received the crown of Hungary in return for his pledges to uphold religious toleration for Protestants there. In April that same year, the largely Protestant Austrian and Moravian estates received similar guarantees in return for their commitment to raise an army for Matthias so that he could march on Prague and depose his brother. Emperor Rudolf relinquished his control over these provinces to his brother in June 1608, clinging still to his imperial title as well as to Bohemia, Silesia and Lusatia, three of the four provinces which together made the Kingdom of Bohemia, the other one being Moravia. Matthias ought to have known better than to stall in the hopes that the Protestants of Austria, Moravia and Hungary would perhaps forget about their jealously defended religious privileges. During the summer of 1608, though, Matthias did not implement the religious acts that his subjects had expected, so these same subjects took matters into their own hands. By October of 1608, the estates of Upper and Lower Austria had forged an alliance among themselves, cast as a confederation to preserve their freedoms, 
and before long foreign actors such as Christian of Anhalt from the Palatinate were getting in touch. All of this spurred Matthias into action. He confirmed the privileges of the Protestants in Austria, Moravia and Hungary in March 1609. Back in Prague, the ailing Emperor Rudolf was facing renewed pressures from the Bohemians to make similar pronouncements on their religious privileges. As with the Austrians, the majority of Protestant Bohemians gathered together to mount pressure on their emperor and king, and once again, Christian of Anhalt approached. Unwilling to watch his rule decay any further, Rudolf bowed to the inevitable, and he signed the Letter of Majesty on the 9th of July 1609. The Bohemians were granted religious toleration in line with their neighbours in the Habsburg lands, while they also acquired the right to maintain a standing committee of defensors. Individuals who would liaise between the estates in the different regions of Bohemia and ensure that Rudolf remained true to his promises. The underlying message was sent that if Rudolf didn't keep his word, then the Bohemians would move against him in force. This eventuality came to pass in January 1611, when Archduke Leopold, I know there's a lot of names going around, but these Habsburg families were typically large, Leopold was the younger brother of Ferdinand of Styria. He was also the cousin of Rudolf and Matthias, and he marched on Prague with 7,000 men. Rudolf's reasoning for allowing his cousin Leopold to march into his lands may have been due to Rudolf's anger at being forced to make concessions to the Protestants, or it may have been seen simply as wishing to reassert his authority over the Bohemian people. The year before, during the Ulic cleve crisis we've covered in 1610, that same Archduke Leopold, marching with the same army, had invaded Ulic and attempted to create a fait accompli for the claimants to the duchies without success by marching on their lands. Here again, the Emperor's cousin appeared to be jumping the gun. Archduke Leopold had something of a reputation for jumping the gun, but the trick didn't work in Ulic and it was met with a still more startling failure at Prague. According to the settlement made with Matthias during the Ulic Cleave crisis, Leopold was supposed to reduce his army's size and move to Passau, where his bishopric was located and where he could hopefully cause less trouble. Making a great deal of noise about the difficulties of moving an army home over the winter of 1610-11 though, Leopold asked his cousin if he could quarter his forces in southern Bohemia instead. The Bohemian estates were, reasonably enough, concerned that Rudolf might use this force of Leopold's against them, so they volunteered provisions so that Leopold would be on his way before long, and he wouldn't have to quarter in their lands. In public, Rudolf gave assurances to the Bohemians that Leopold's army would not be allowed into Bohemia, but in private, Emperor Rudolf welcomed his cousin in, and seemed, indeed, to intend to fulfil the worst fears of the Bohemians. Once they found out the truth of what Rudolf and his cousin Leopold were planning though, the reaction of the Bohemians was predictably enough apoplectic. At first in disbelief that Rudolf would effectively lie to their faces, the defensors of the Bohemian estates soon set to work organising a defence of Prague, where Leopold appeared to be headed by late January 1611. By mid-February, the Bohemian crown jewels had been moved from Prague, and the defensors had appealed to Matthias to depose Rudolf and come to their rescue. In the meantime, Archduke Leopold gathered his forces near White Mountain, curiously close to the spot where, nine years later, the more infamous Bohemian revolt would be crushed. Indeed, the incident of Leopold's invasion of Bohemia created further parallels with the later Bohemian revolt, 
Arguably the most striking was the practice of defenestration among the citizens of Prague, who turned on several Jesuit institutions and Catholic churches which had been installed during Rudolf's reign, and which were suspected, in some cases correctly, of aiding Rudolf and in getting Leopold's army closer to the city. The chaos in the streets of Prague, as Leopold's invading army clashed with the hastily assembled militia, anticipated the scenes left in the aftermath of the defeat of November 1620. Unsurprisingly, considering their king's track record, the Protestants... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market of Prague in 1611 were desperately fearful and paranoid that the invasion by Leopold was only one part of Rudolf's plan and that the other was to take over the city from within. One witness recalled that A shot rang from the top of the Jesuit college onto residents of the old city and the common man built it up in his head that a murder spree was about to take place whose purpose was to stamp out his religion. But the Bohemian citizens needn't have worried too much. Archduke Leopold's troops proved unfit for the task of seizing Prague, and with rumours of reinforcements, led by Matthias en route, they fled the city and returned with Leopold to Passau. Arriving in Prague in March 1611, Matthias agreed now to depose his dying brother Rudolf, and to respect the letter of majesty which the Bohemians had so desperately guarded. By May of 1611, Matthias was crowned King of Bohemia in a ceremony that directly referenced and specifically confirmed the Letter of Majesty in its charter. The Bohemian Protestants, and everyone in between, so it appeared, could rest easy and trust in their new king's promises. Discussions about electing the next Holy Roman Emperor were hosted in Regensburg over September and October 1611, whereupon those gathered debated on the finer points of the different Habsburg candidates on offer. The 55-year-old Matthias, childless just like his older brother Rudolf, would not be approved until the following June, after Rudolf died in January 1612 and added an element of urgency to the proceedings. 
Had Matthias learned much from the Bohemian Trials? Considering its location as the flashpoint for the Thirty Years' War, only seven years after this initial revolt, it can appear incredible that yet another Bohemian Revolt, this one far more damaging, could have erupted in Bohemia yet again. Motivated by fears about their religious guarantees, the Defensers acted in summer 1618 to defend these privileges, but across Prague and Bohemia as a whole, the mood was a great deal more rebellious than it had been in 1611. What had changed in the interim, in between the years of 1611 to 18, to make the Bohemians so rebellious? And how had these rebellious feelings been allowed to so develop, when the Habsburg family had seen firsthand what the penalties would be for mismanaging their Bohemian subjects? Such questions appear all the more mysterious, given Matthias's reputation for being soft on Protestants. Considering the forceful eviction of his belligerent cousin Leopold from Prague, and his insistence on replacing his intolerant, stubborn older brother with an individual that better understood the nuances of Bohemian society, himself. Explaining how the Bohemian Revolt erupted in 1618, as much as explaining why this revolt transformed into the Thirty Years' War, is an impossible task unless we appreciate what came before. The short answer is that between the years 1612 to 18, Bohemian society became more anxious for its privileges, and Matthias, apparently, became more interested in finding loopholes to wrest fresh concessions out of the letter of majesty to the benefit of Catholics. He alienated 132 parishes to the Archbishop of Prague during his brief reign, demonstrating that Matthias's zeal for Catholicism had by no means waned. This was despite the fact that Matthias knew precisely how costly and damaging the period 1608-12 to had been, not just for the Habsburg reputation, but also for its already dangerously depleted coffers. It is worth reiterating the fact that the adventures of Archduke Leopold, as he had moved through Upper Austria and into Bohemia in January 1611, had cost the dynasty dearly. Leopold's soldiers, who had been unpaid in their previous campaigns in both the Turkish War and the more recent Ulick Cleave War, rampaged across the countryside in search of payment in kind. These soldiers caused two million florins worth of damage to the Upper Austrian and Bohemian lands and carted around as much as 269 wagons full of booty while they marched. Leopold's army, so it seemed, had gone rogue, to the point that even this unscrupulous archduke became embarrassed at its behaviour and he joined it outside Prague in time to watch his cavalry ride off with the limited funds raised for the army that he had gathered. With Prague's militia guarding the bridges into the main portion of the city and his infantry having no hope of payment, Leopold fled the scene as we saw in mid-March 1611 before his cousin Matthias could arrive. Again, this experience should have taught the Habsburgs a stern lesson. Where soldiers couldn't find payment from their masters, they would effectively turn rogue in their quest to acquire it. In addition, while their own personal lands were ravaged by this rampaging army, it's worth underlining that neither Matthias nor Rudolf were particularly quick in acting, because they appreciated that any effective response would require money, and money was in the hands of the estates, estates who would require religious concessions in return for parting with it. In other words, the Habsburgs watched their own lands burn and their people be slaughtered, while they hesitated to grant their subjects the religious toleration they desired. All of these experiences, from the religious unrest in Bohemia to the bloody revolts in Hungary, even to the Turkish war itself, they all revealed much about the dangers of miscalculation, about the want of funds and the religious sensitivities of their subjects. 
They also revealed how desperately vulnerable the Habsburg lands were to attack and invasion by a Turkish force, a religious band of Magyars, or a rampaging Habsburg army in search of payment. These experiences should have been properly absorbed, and the warnings fully heeded, but they were not. Instead, with the immediate problems patched up, the root causes were ignored, as Matthias settled into his short reign as emperor. Before we go any further and talk to you about the situation underway in the Habsburg lands during this period, I wanted to talk to you about something you might find interesting. You see, while the Thirty Years' War is released every two weeks, and while you enjoy chowing down on it, you should be aware that this is by no means the only series that we release. We are also very much active in other areas too. If you were to head over to the Patreon page, which I'm sure you're aware when Diplomacy Fails has, you would note that for just $1 a month, you could be getting a whole load of extra content. If you increase that all the more, then you'll get more content as well. For $2, you can be getting these episodes ad-free, which means you won't have to hear me do this. You'll also get these episodes on Monday rather than Wednesday every week, so if you're desperate to hear the latest instalment, that's the best way to do it. History friends will also know that $2 will get you the 12-part Jan Sobieski biography series, so if you want to learn more about Poland's arguably last great king, who ruled as Poland's king during the last quarter of the 17th century, then look no further than this biography series. For $5, of course, you'll probably know you can get Poland Is Not Yet Lost, which is an exclusive series you won't get anywhere else that runs concurrently to this one here. It's handy in a way, because every other week, every week that the Thirty Years' War isn't coming out, an episode of Poland comes out. So you'll never have to do without this podcast on a weekly basis if you support this podcast at the $5 level or more. Further incentives to support at higher levels are all there. Merchandise, more content, etc, etc. I would really encourage you to check it out if you want to squeeze more out of this podcast than you already have. At times like these, with COVID and self-isolation and everyone feeling just a little bit gloomy, I understand money is tight. But I also have to emphasise, you guys have been so great at supporting this show in the past, and through crises like these. And because you've done that, I haven't had to worry about my job security. I've been able to just keep on plugging away at the PhD and not worry all that much. And this security means the world to me, and I really can't express enough how important your support has been in that regard. So, if you don't feel like giving up money, I fully understand. But I would just ask, if you wouldn't mind, plugging into the different social media areas, such as Twitter, where you can follow us at WDF Podcast, or the Facebook group, which you can join and which is getting close to 900 members, or the Facebook page, which you should go and like, and just basically keep on following. It's part of my way to make history thrive and bring history to a wider audience. I really am passionate about it, and I believe it's important to do so. And I have to emphasise I could not do it without your support. So thanks so much again, and let's get back to the episode. This conflict between Matthias and Rudolf has been named the Brothers' Quarrel. It's easy in many respects to view it as a wasteful, unnecessary conflict, which only weakened the position of the Austrian Habsburg family, and which facilitated religious concessions to their Protestant subjects, which, by the way, no Catholic Austrian Habsburg, operating according to the terms of the 1555 Peace of Augsburg, could possibly countenance in the long term. But the brothers' quarrel also obliterated what little credit the two brothers still had. Rudolf's untrustworthiness became notorious, 
as did Archduke Leopold's carelessness, recklessness and belligerence. Overall, the experience left the dynasty more critically deep in debt, devoid of goodwill, surrounded by subjects that had been kept loyal only through the bribe of unsustainable religious concessions, in the Habsburg mind at least, and promises which the Habsburgs had no genuine desire to keep. The Habsburgs had squandered much of the goodwill of their subjects, who now anxiously relied upon promises which had only been wrested from their masters under duress. This had not been the case under previous Habsburg emperors, especially those that had ruled before Rudolf II. Indeed, the Habsburgs became increasingly absolutist and dogmatic in their spread of Catholicism, thanks largely to the heightened activity of the Jesuits, who helped the Habsburg self-image, and what it meant for the Habsburgs to be seen as powerful. In the past, Habsburg authority had been intertwined with the dynasty's ability to intervene in religious disputes and find an acceptable balance. By the end of the brothers' quarrel, though, the only measure of Habsburg authority that seemed to matter was the dynasty's ability to forcibly assert its claims and power over its subjects, who felt equally inclined to resist, since these efforts came twinned with a domineering quest to revive Catholicism under the Counter-Reformation. One individual who must be credited with at least trying to solve some of the empire's problems was Melchior Kleisel, Matthias' personal advisor and the Bishop of Vienna. Between 1612 to 18, Melchior Kleisel represented one of the leading lights of Austrian Habsburg policymaking and a strong advocate for cooperation between the two religiously divided camps. The example given by the late Emperor Rudolf and his replacement can hardly have inspired much faith in Melchior Kleisel's mission, but this was not from lack of trying on his part. Kleisel genuinely laboured to disarm the two confessional alliance blocs during the August 1613 Diet at Regensburg. As we have seen, though, he was unsuccessful in this, and the Protestants walked out of that body. Kleisel wrote private letters to each of the attendees, including Christian of Anhalt, but this gesture didn't bear fruit. It was not only an opportunity to foster cooperation among the moderates, it was also a chance to repair the damage wrought during the stormy session of 1608, whereupon disgusted Protestant princes had walked out of the Diet for the first time, and shortly thereafter formed the Evangelical Union. Gliesel hoped that if he appealed to the moderates and ratified religious toleration in certain cities, then the extremist parties, vindicated to some extent by the revolts in the Habsburgs' own lands, it has to be said, would be disarmed. Yet the extremists were not disarmed, and nor were the two alliance blocs, both of whom had gone on to connect to further foreign capitals since their establishment five years before. The further goal of isolating the leader of the anti-Hasburg cooperation, the Palatinate, also failed because Kleisel could not rally enough Protestants or Catholics to his side. The Diet at Regensburg in 1613 essentially solved nothing, and although all involved couldn't know it yet, this was to be the final time they would meet in this Diet until 1640. Melchior Kleisel's efforts after the event to undermine the Catholic League was rewarded by the creation of a Christian defence in May 1614, in a bid to recast the Catholic League as non-sectarian and open to all. Another Habsburg Archduke was brought in to lead this Christian defence, in tandem with Maximilian of Bavaria, but Maximilian disapproved of this Habsburg interference, and he created his own secret alliance of Catholic powers over the next few months. The original Catholic League 
was actually quietly disbanded, but this whole process had the effect of neutering the Catholic response to the inflammation of the Ulic Cleave crisis later in the year. Kleisel's actions did intertwine the Habsburg dynasty with this new organisation, demonstrating that the Austrian Habsburgs couldn't stand aloof from such a grouping. But this act could not make up for the bare facts about the dynasty's position by 1614. Besieged at home by Protestants, shamed after several failed military initiatives, and deeply in debt to legions of soldiers, who could still be seen traipsing bitterly around the outskirts of Vienna in search of pay, it has to be said that the years since the eruption of the Turkish War had not been kind to the Austrian Habsburgs, and a further problem loomed. Far from the distinct problems of the empire, and near the periphery of civilization itself, lay the northern powers of Scandinavia and Eastern Europe. While apparently disconnected from the Austrian Habsburgs' dilemmas and Ferdinand's ambitions, in time this portion of Europe was to make the greatest contribution towards the prolonging of the Thirty Years' War, as Germany's populace were set alight by the Lion of the North. Before he made his mark, though, this lion, Gustavus Adolphus, would have to grow. I hope you'll join me for that, tale history friends. But until then, my name is Zach, and this has been the 10th installment of the Thirty Years' War. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 